From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. In understanding infectious disease, there's a multitude of ways in which different people are affected. With so many different variables, it can seem nearly impossible to fully grasp the impact of some diseases. Originally a dentist from New Zealand, Dr. Nick Menzies came to the States to pursue a broader career path in trying to understand these unpredictable infectious diseases. By means of mathematical modeling, Dr. Menzies studies epidemiology to predict the outcomes of those infected with HIV and tuberculosis. Nick Menzies is an assistant professor of global health in the Department of Global Health and Population and part of the core faculty of the Harvard Center for Health Decision Science at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Menzies uses decision science and quantitative research to understand the consequences of policies to combat major infectious diseases and help design effective disease control programs where resources are limited. Welcome to the show, Dr. Menzies. Great to have you. Thank you. Um, Can you start by telling us a bit about your background, um, what you studied? Sure, definitely. So I'm originally a dentist from New Zealand, though I haven't practiced in the last 10 years. More recently, I worked with the CDC in Atlanta in their Global AIDS program, where I worked as part of the team sort of looking at the costs and cost effectiveness of different uh, interventions that were being deployed to uh, prevent and control HIV in high burden countries. And more recently, I've been focused on TB research, and so trying to understand the impact, uh, both sort of economic and epidemiological, the impact of health interventions and policies deployed to control TB. Um, And can you give us a little bit more information about how you went from dentistry to being in the global AIDS program and then doing TB? I think uh, commonly we, we, uh, you know, remember things in a way that projects a, a, a nice trajectory from one activity in one's life to the next. Um, for me, I was practicing as a dentist in New Zealand. I must say I just trained. I'd been practicing for two years. And the, uh, the future path for that career really sort of worried me and sort of scared me a bit, I guess, and that it's quite narrow. I saw that young dentists would grow up to either be older dentists still doing the same thing or managing dentists in some way. And so neither of those appealed to me too much, and so I wanted to get into health research. In particular, I wanted to get into uh, research which would inform how we provide um, development assistance, of health development assistance, to uh, low-income, high-disease-burden uh, countries. So to do that, I realized it was probably better to have a qualification from a U.S. university, given that a lot of sort of funding is provided by U.S. institutions. So I came to Emory University in Atlanta and did a Master's of Public Health there. Can you talk um, in more detail about what you did with the CDC? Sure. And so when I joined the CDC, that was in 2005, 
so PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, had just been sort of, uh, sort of funded under George W. Bush. And really what that was is a huge increase in funding direct from the U.S. government to sort of scale up uh, programs to co control HIV AIDS in a number of developing countries. And so at that time, I think we had a list of 12 to 15 countries, and that has expanded more recently. But it really was a sort of sea change in the amount of funding available. So what the CDC was doing and the global AIDS program at the CDC was rapidly expanding to help support these new uh, HIV control programs. What I was doing there, I was part of the newly formed sort of costing and cost effectiveness team. Um, I think when I joined, it was just two of us. So we were trying to understand the costs of supporting these HIV control programs, knowing that sort of there were these sort of one-off costs that needed to be borne. Staff needed to be trained, in some cases, facilities needed to be renovated or indeed some new facilities needed to be built. National protocols needed to be developed. However, there was also going to be some ongoing costs. And even at the start of PEPFAR, it was known that if someone was put on HIV treatment, so that's antiretroviral therapy, we know that sort of greatly increases their survival, reduces their morbidity and mortality. If someone was put on uh, ART, we wanted to make sure we could continue to support that in the future. Um, certainly didn't want a situation where these programs would be scaled up, yet then funding would be either flatlined or sort of lowered in the future such that people could, would be taken off ART. And so that meant we really wanted to be careful about our projections about the sort of future budgets that would need to support these programs. At the same time, we also wanted to sort of undertake research to understand what was the most effective and most cost-effective things we could do. We knew that even with these increased budgets, we knew that there was sim simply more demand than there was funding available. We would need to seek out the most cost-effective uh, interventions to provide and make sure we were doing the most we could with the funding available. Can you tell us a bit more about your path from the CDC to Harvard? So while I was working at the CDC, obviously we were doing a lot of applied implementation research. I realized it would be useful to gain advanced training in some of the methods I was using. And so for that reason, I applied to and gained entry to a, um, the Harvard Health Policy PhD program and came up to Boston to um, study here. How does that tie into your current work? Well, so I guess, and to elaborate on why so I looked for higher training, so or more advanced training. Often in uh, sort of infectious diseases, one is applying interventions where the benefits of those interventions uh, extend beyond what you can measure empirically. And so they'll have consequences that play out many years into the future, and they might affect individuals beyond the scope of the population that is enrolled in the study. And so HIV is a very good example of this, where, as we now understand, providing ART can have a huge impact on the potential of someone to transmit HIV uh, to their sexual partners. And so if one is providing ART, there'll be the benefit to the individual in terms of extended survival and reduced morbidity, but there's also these benefits to the broader population in terms of reducing transmission. And so to understand those benefits and to consider them as part of, sort of a comparison of potential policies that could be adopted, often what we need to do is use sort of calculations to extrapolate out 
all of the different benefits that might be produced by a particular policy. And we normally think of those sort of set of calculations as mathematical modeling. And that is really what I trained in as part of my health policy degree. So with that degree, what do you do now? How does that tie into the work you are doing now? So a lot of the work I'm doing now still focuses on uh, HIV, but also a lot more on tuberculosis. With the sort of great successes we have had in um, in some part preventing um, HIV, but also really scaling up these ART programs that I guess both prevent transmission but also improve survival, HIV, which was for a long time the major cause of infectious disease deaths globally, um, really now those deaths have dropped um, and tuberculosis is the major cause of infectious disease deaths. And so for me that is one, I guess, motivation that's led me to shift my portfolio towards TB. And the other aspect is really that in a lot of high burden countries, and so I'm thinking of those um, in sort of southern and eastern sub-Saharan Africa, TB and HIV really go hand in hand. And so even at the population level, you can see this in the uh, data on sort of uh, case reporting, where in the sort of 90s and 2000s, one would see this huge uptick in HIV diagnoses and sort of where there was population surveys, we would see sort of increasing HIV prevalence. At the same time, we would see these sort of rapid increases in the number of TB cases of diagnosed and being put onto treatment. So this sort of uh, simultaneous uptick in both HIV prevalence and TB incidence is being driven by the immunosuppression produced by HIV. And so I haven't talked about sort of TB natural histories so far, but in a lot of these countries, a substantial fraction of the population will be infected with TB in some latent form. And they'll also be exposed to TB infection on a regular basis. Most of those people, if healthy, if they don't have HIV, most of those people will not develop active TB. But with an increasing fraction of the population being immunosuppressed, we'd see a lot more of those of TB infections rapidly developing into active TB disease. And so you have these dual epidemics of uh, TB and HIV with the consequence that approximately a quarter of all HIV deaths are coming from a subsequent uh, episode of TB disease. So my work right now really falls into two domains. One domain is uh, sort of, I guess, the bread and butter modeling work. And so developing and applying models to answer policy questions, both in the US and abroad. Um, and then also methodological work, uh, trying to understand what are the differences between the modeling approaches we might take and what are the implications of those differences. In terms of the applied work, I work with the uh, CDC in Atlanta with their Division of TB Elimination to understand the future course of TB in the United States. And so this really is a situation where um, latent TB disease, so that is TB that has been acquired potentially many years ago, is a primary driver of uh, the epidemic in the U.S., so TB transmission in the U.S. is relatively rare. Uh, most of the cases that develop are de developing amongst individuals who were either 
sort of infected in the US when sort of when they were much younger or amongst immigrants. And so they might have been infected in their country of origin before they came to the US. Certainly TB amongst foreign-born individuals uh, is the largest fraction of TB cases in the US with approximately 70% of US TB cases um, developing amongst foreign-born individuals while they only represent a small fraction of the overall US population. And so these are individuals who, again, they acquired TB abroad, but given this long latency phase for this disease, they're now developing TB once they've entered the country and haven't really had any recent uh, exposure to new infection. So that's one subject of research, trying to understand what's going to happen in the US in the future as a function of uh, changes in uh, TB prevention and control policy in the US and also as a function of changes in immigration just knowing that that is such an important uh, feature of TB epidemiology in the US. In high burden settings I've been primarily concerned with understanding the impact of new diagnostics uh, that might be introduced to TB control programs. If we look at global disease control I feel that TB control community has uh, always been a bit envious of HIV. Obviously, HIV uh, in recent years has had a huge amount of funding compared to TB, but there's also been a very rapid rate of technological development. Uh, we now have, uh, certainly we don't have curative treatments for HIV, but we have very effective treatments that will uh, greatly uh, reduce progression of the disease that will prevent transmission, we have amazing diagnostics. And so when I was working at the CDC, we had, even then, we had sort of these HIV rapid test kits that cost about 90 cents, could give you a result in about 90 seconds. They were highly sensitive and specific. In TB, we would love that kind of technology. Our diagnostics in TB um, were developed a long time ago. Um, and so sputum smear microscopy is the, or has been, uh, the backbone of TB diagnosis, and it would only be positive, give a positive test result in about 50 to 70% of those individuals who actually did have active pulmonary TB. And so you're missing a large fraction of all of those who have the disease. And it got even worse with HIV, in that with HIV, people were less likely to test positive um, with uh, smear microscopy, even if they had TB. And those that were less likely to test positive were those with more advanced HIV disease and more likely to experience rapid deterioration um, if they weren't treated for their TB. So certainly in these high burden, low income settings, there was a, a lot of improvement that could be had in TB diagnostics. So there was great excitement um, when about five, 10 years ago, we had a new TB diagnostic come onto the market, the Gene Expert uh, MTB uh, RIF test um, developed by Cepheid Pharmaceuticals. And so this was a cartridge based PCR test that was certainly better than smear microscopy in terms of its sensitivity. Um, it could be deployed at the clinic level or otherwise, so very close to the clinic level. Um, and it also provided information on uh, rifampicin resistance. 
And so as many people know, drug resistance is a major problem for TB control. Rifampicin is one of the major drugs in our first-line TB treatment regimen. So being able to identify those people who have rifampicin resistance was very useful. But the reason why there was really so much excitement about this new diagnostic was that it would help us improve TB case detection, that it would have improved sensitivity. And so... uh, a lot of my recent work has been trying to understand what those improvements might be and these days interpret the data that are showing that, well, even though the clinical characteristics of this test are great, we aren't seeing the benefits we thought we would see in the field. Can you tell us a little bit more about modeling? Yeah, certainly. Modeling generally deals with the problem that uh, often we can't measure, so if we're comparing two policies, we can't measure all of the outcomes we are interested in. We might be interested in long-term changes in sort of the incidence and prevalence of disease. We might be interested in the sort of uh, changes in survival that will sort of really be a function of a lot of different things and might sort of extend beyond what we can look at in a sort of a field trial. And so you can think of modeling as a form of extrapolation from the evidence we have. A real example can be uh, comparisons of policy options for TB. TB is a lung disease spread when an individual uh, with active TB coughs, uh, speaks, sings, or otherwise aerosolizes the bacteria and it gets breathed in by someone else. Now, for those people who are infected, a small fraction, around 5%, will develop active TB within the next year or two. Even after those first two years, there's a small risk of of progressing to active TB some years, many years in the future. And given that, what the body does with a TB infection, if it is able to prevent immediate active diseases, it walls it off in what's called a tubercle. And so... The, the bacteria is still alive within those tubercles and sometimes there can be progression to active disease or reactivation of that disease many years later. What that means is if with an intervention you're able to prevent one new infection, the benefits of that, sort of that change, some of that will be felt relatively soon and those might be measured in an empirical trial. But some of those benefits, preventing those long-term sort of cases many years in the future, you're never going to pick up on a trial, but you do often want to consider them as one of the benefits of the policy. And so when we're using a mathematical model, what we're doing is trying to extrapolate out to also sort of count those cases we might avert many years in the future. So we can still count them as one of the benefits of the policy. However, I think I'm giving a, a fairly positive uh, view on sort of how one can construct and use these models. I think it's important to remember um, also the difficulties in that in constructing these models, we're trying to represent a number of natural history mechanisms and sort of health system aspects where we really sometimes don't have a good understanding of how everything fits together. And this is particularly true in high-burden, sort of low-income settings, where the amount of clinical research is lower and the amount of sort of routine reporting data that we can use to describe 
epidemiology and sort of receipt of health services, a lot of those sort of data are much fewer and much harder to get. And so here we're constructing models when we're not exactly sure of what's going on. And what that means is that there's going to be a lot of uncertainty in uh, the results of those models, particularly as the outcomes we're interested in get further and further away from what we can measure in a trial. So one thing I've been concerned with recently in my own research is trying to understand what are the differences in the approaches taken by different models um, and how we can try and line those up with um, sort of empirical evidence, essentially to try and validate those models in some way. And so we recently conducted a review of all the published uh, TB models that we could find and sort of understand. And so going through the published literature, pulling out those studies that used a mathematical model to understand TB epidemiology in some way, um, and tried to recreate the part of the model that described progression to active disease from initial infection. And that this is a canonical feature of TB epidemiology and something that really does determine what the model will say about uh, the future course of the epidemic and the impact of potential control interventions. This is sort of things like, you know, if you're infected, what is the probability that you'll break down to active disease in the near term? What is your total lifetime risk of developing active uh, disease? These kinds of, sort of things. And in that review, and so in the end we pulled out just over 300 different uh, modeled analyses. Uh, in those modeled analyses, there was a relatively small number of different modeling approaches taken. And we rebuilt sort of those model structures and then parameterized those model structures with the sort of parameter values used uh, by those studies and projected out what that model was saying about progression to active disease. And we saw a huge range in the results across these models. Frankly, we undertook this study because we were concerned that there would be variation uh, between models. So what we saw was really greater than sort of what we expected. Some models were saying less than 1% of the population would ever develop TB over the next 20 years. Other models were saying sort of a large fraction or almost all of the population would progress rapidly to active disease relatively soon after infection. So this is actually something we know something about. We do know that, you know, as I mentioned before, approximately 5% of the population will progress to active disease uh, within two years after infection. And over the lifetime, the understanding is that approximately 10% will progress to active disease. And so those models which are saying, you know, everyone develops active TB, those models that were suggesting, you know, very few people develop active TB, they were misrepresenting the uh, natural history of TB. And while it's hard for us to say what impact that would have on the policy conclusions they're drawing, certainly it isn't good. And that we build these models and we believe they can tell us something useful by dint of the fact that they're representing features of the real world. And so if they're not doing that, if the assumptions they're making about disease natural history are so far away from what we know from the combined um, evidence on TB, and I must say we've been collecting sort of epidemiological evidence on TB for a long time, um, and so when the models don't fit with that evidence, uh, 
it means that it's likely that the policy predictions that those models will produce um, are more difficult to believe. One part of our goals with this research is just to reveal the heterogeneity in these research methods. Given that we're trying to predict outcomes that will occur many years in the future, there's no real way to uh, to check them, to validate those predictions, and that you'd have to wait 20 years and then hope that sort of the policies have played out the, say, the way you say they would in the model to make that comparison. Um, and then even then, you might not be certain. You know, Obviously, we only have one policy in the real world, and so we have no control group. And so validating these models is hard. And so with this research, we're really trying to, as much as possible, um, check those predictions and check we're being consistent across models and with the data that we do have. The overall goal here is to help improve the validity of these models and therefore improve their utility as a, as a policy evaluation tool. I should say that the study I mentioned was funded by the CDC, but through a different collaboration with the TB Modeling and Analysis Consortium, which is a Gates Foundation funded group, we've developed guidance to try and standardize how models that are being used to support policymaking in high burden countries, how those models are built and applied we're also putting together uh, activities to try and benchmark some of those models and understand if there are differences in the results produced by those models, can we justify those differences? So for TB modeling, I think our you know, future to-do list is clear as a field in that if TB modeling is to be a useful tool for policy evaluation, and I should say here, really, we don't have too many options. Um, it's very hard to... Um, you know, to think what would we do if we're not using uh, modeling to try and extrapolate into the future. So if we're going to be using mathematical modeling to evaluate policies, we really need to focus more on making sure those models are consistent with the data that we have, and to make sure that the empirical data to inform those models is also collected. So as is the case right now, when we have a lot of countries trying to think about much more aggressive TB control policies, that we're also conducting the pilot studies and the pragmatic trials that'll demonstrate that those policies actually have the consequences that we think they will in the short term. And then the models are really just being used to extrapolate out to get those long-term outcomes rather than modeling in a vacuum of empirical information. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Well, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed this. Next time on Think Research. You know, on a personal level, everybody was freaking out. This was even before uh, people knew that uh, AIDS was caused by the HIV virus. It hadn't been described. There were certainly no therapies. At the same time, I was working in virology, working on cytomegalovirus, which actually a lot of people um, with HIV AIDS died of CMV. And so it was interesting to us uh, on an intellectual level and in a virology level and realizing that this new disease was actually going to change medicine. We hear from the Wies Institute's lead senior staff scientist, Dr. Michael Super, about his path to studying infectious disease. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. 
Join us the first Wednesday of each month for a new episode. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.